So we're going to be in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, all the way through the end of the chapter. So Genesis 18, starting in 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to, sit, to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Yesterday, as many of you know, marked the worst attack upon the state of Israel in 75 years. Just curious how many of you guys have seen that on the news? Okay, about two-thirds of you. Uh, If you haven't, many of us here have seen videos of men and women gunned down, um, a concert in southern Israel where... Motorcyclists are driving up and and abducting people that will be used later as hostages or human shields. Um, There has been video and pictures of rockets. It's bloody. It's awful. It's 
it should rattle us, should disturb us. It has, it, it's, it's shaken me. And um, on top of that, it happened yesterday morning during Shabbat when they're supposed to rest. And there is no rest when there is war. There's no peace. Shabbat means what? Peace. On top of that, today marks thousands of years since Nehemiah chapter 8 when Ezra read the word of Yahweh, read uh, the Torah, read Moses, the, law, the book, books of Moses. And the people stood for four to six hours and he read it out loud. So this is also a holiday celebrating that they have God's word. And on this holiday, when God's people, or at least the Israelites are, or the Jews are calling out and saying they celebrate that they have God's word, are now being attacked. Now, let, let it be clear that this is a com- complex war spanning generations. And I'm not going to oversimplify the injustices of both sides, but what is clear is that this is evil. There's evil being done right now, and it's abhorrent, and you should grieve it. Despite all the complexities of the political state and all the history between Arabs and Jews in that area, area, you and I should have broken hearts. And you can imagine from the Jew standpoint, they see themselves as righteous. Hamas is completely wicked, and that's what we often do. Those who are not us are completely wicked, two-dimensional. They're not three-dimensional, and we are two-dimensional. We are perfectly righteous. And so the Jews right now must be crying out, God, will you allow the righteous to perish along with the wicked? The theological tension in their hearts must be absolutely unbearable and thick. In, in one sense, they say, uh, blessed be Yahweh, blessed be Adonai. He is good, and he's a creator. He's El Elyon, God Most High. He's El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is God, El Rohi, who sees us, and yet it doesn't look like you see us. It doesn't look like you're powerful. It doesn't look like you care. Why is there a war? Why are thousands at this point will have perished and more to come? And then we just think and zoom out from that war into our own lives. All of us here have moments or seasons, or you may be in that season right now where you say, God, how is it possible that this is happening? Or how is it possible that that happened? I thought you saw us. I thought you were powerful. Where are you? I thought I was your child. All of us here feel this tension. And so this morning, we are going to enter into this story that happened in time and and learn as God is further discipling Abraham and revealing to Abraham what his heart is like and what he does and why he does what he does. And in doing so, he's going to call us to join Abraham's work as priests, to intercede for the wicked and for the righteous. That was a lot there. But I, I would just say war, as evil it is as it is, it has a awakening stimulant to us, does it not? Wakes us up to reality. It's hard to care about a remodel or hard to harbor bitterness or jealousy over someone who didn't respond to a text and hard to go over all that stuff that we deal with in the day in, day out when we think about war. And so I'm grateful that that is one, one good effect that God can use from war is to waken us up and it's waken my heart up in certain ways. And I hope it wakes you up and God is gonna use this passage even more to wake us all up to what he has called us to. So we're continuing chapter 18 in the series on Genesis, being rooted in God's story. And last week, we saw that God informs Abraham and his wife that a year from now, they will have a son. For years, God has been promising 
but then he's, but he's primarily been general. And he's not given any timestamps. For the first time in the story, he's saying, a year from now, you will have a child. And what happens? Sarah laughs in her cynicism. Understandable, but in her cynicism and doubt. Can a woman who's this old give birth? Ship has sailed, God. And yet, God has ordained to use this to further reveal his character, his power, his kindness. And the key word, key verse that we heard last week is anything too hard for Yahweh. Is anything too hard for Yahweh, church? And in our passage, God is going to further reveal himself to Abraham and show how Abraham fits in God's plans. We're going to get into that more. So look at verse 17 with me, church. God shares his plan with his people. Yahweh said, should be on the screen, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay, so we see for the first time something that you can easily overlook if you're just reading the Bible quickly and not comprehend the magnitude of what we just read. God, God Elyon, El, God Most High, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything to it, stoops down to talk to one of his created beings to share his plans. This is marvelous that God would so stoop down to share his heart and his plans with his created cre- creation. That's amazing. Why share with him? Well, let's look at two reasons listed in verse 18. Two reasons here. One, he shall be a great and mighty nation. And number two, all nations will be blessed in him. Why are those good reasons for God to share his plans with Abraham? That he's going to be a great nation and then all nations will be blessed in him? Well, here's why. God's plan that he shares with Abraham directly relates with this whole plan of blessing the nations or not. What I mean by that is that what God is about to share with Abraham is in line with God's general heart to bless and redeem this world. And reverse the curse. And why would he share with Abraham? Well, he shares with Abraham because Abraham is part of bringing about his plans. And that's good news for us. Because anything God ultimately wants to do, he in his condescension and love is actually inviting man, inviting you and me to join in him to bring about his plans. Not for us to just passively watch him do his plans. But how could Abraham do such a thing to bring about God's plans? Well, look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord or way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So let's see what's going on here. Abraham won't be a mighty nation because he himself is mighty, but because God has chosen Abraham to be mighty. And notice that the only way these promises will come to pass is if Abraham and his family and everyone in his household are going to follow the way of Yahweh. The way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord like? Well, what does it say? What are the two descriptions right here in the way of the Lord? Can you say it out loud with me? Righteousness and Justice. And so for, for Abraham to bring about God's plans, he must, 
He himself as the leader of his family and all of his followers and all of his kids should live the way of righteousness and justice. So if you want to partner with God's plans, we have to be walking in righteousness and justice the way of Yahweh, which is, just reminds me how later in Acts they talk about followers of Jesus are followers of the what? The way. The way. What are his promises? Ultimately, remember Genesis chapter 12 is that God is going to bless all the nations through him. And this goes back to the very created mandate in Genesis 1 through 3 that God is going to multiply and spread his shalom, his garden presence to the whole world through his people. And so church, that is Abraham's calling. And by extension, because we're Abraham's line, see Galatians, that's our calling too. But let's keep moving on to the specific plan that God is going to share with Abraham. God didn't share every plan with Abraham, but he's going to share this next plan with Abraham. Verse 20. Then Yahweh said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This word, outcry, remember in Genesis, it's just constantly cyclical. When was the last time you heard the word outcry? Outcry. Anyone remember that? Just say it out loud. If you're wrong, it's okay. We'll forget. Outcry. Cain? Who said Cain? Yeah. Someone did. Hannah did. Awesome. Anna looked around. Who said that? <laughs> remember. Look at Genesis 4.10. The Yahweh said, what have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is the same word, family, right here. This outcry. When injustices have happened, and now there's an empty void of, when will justice be fulfilled? Why, why is there not justice? We're going to learn more about the sins of Sodom next week from Pastor Ross. But what we see is that there were cries of oppression coming from probably within and without, crying out for justice. We often think about Sodom being the typical city that represents sexual perversion. And that, that is true, and you'll see that soon. But we learned something from the prophet Ezekiel. I think it's an important lesson. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Would you read this with me? Would you read this with me? Or this with me eventually? Nope, it's not up there. All right. There it is. Would you read this with me? Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters. It didn't say anything about sex or rape or homosexuality or all the other things that Sodom is known for. What, it's important to note that because sexual perversion is deeply tied with gluttony, pride, and greed. Sin is never isolated in one, like, oh, I'm very self-controlled in this area, but all these other areas, I'm like rampant. No, no, they, they always overlap because sin is never satisfied. It's always hungry for more and more of your heart. And what we see here is that for these realities to thrive, excess of food, pride, and gluttony, you will see people being oppressed. Wherever you see a society where these realities are thriving, 
and sexual perversions are thriving, you will have them thriving only on the backs of oppression of other people. Because the oppression of a certain group of people is what props up this to be able to be the reality for others. You can't have one without the other. The oppression of one supports the indulgences of the other. So the Sodomites neglected the poor and needy all around them, though they themselves lived in luxury and every kind of indulgence. And it's easy for us to point the finger at Sodom. And next week when you hear some of the things that they're willing to do, it is horrific. And we'd be like, oh, those people. Again, remember, what, what is our temptation? We make everybody else two-dimensional. They're that way, I'm not like that. They're bad, I'm good. But if we just look at our nation, we're not very different. We're not very different. You may say, that sounds like an exaggeration, especially if you have this idealistic view of the American culture, like we're so good and we're the hope of the nations. We're not the hope of the nations, by the way. Jesus is, right? But, but check this out. In June, the fourth most visited website in the United States was a porn website. And there are others in the top 10 and especially in the top 50. And this one site in June had 1.68 billion views in June alone from Americans. 1.68 billion. We don't have 1.68 billion people in America. And that's how many clicks it had in June alone. You say, well, what does that have to do with this? Well, for that website to thrive as much as it does means many suffer. And there are so many studies that have intricately tied the pornography industry and the sex trafficking industry together. One fuels and funds the other. And if everyone stopped looking at porn, you will see a tremendous drop of sex trafficking, guaranteed. Two million children being trafficked every year in our world. And it funds it. We're not very different from Sodom. Our indulgences are built off the backs of other people's oppression. And I'm using the word oppression and justice, and I know some of you may get your hackles up. Oh, whoa, are you getting woke on me? These are Jesus' heart. This is God's heart. This is biblical terms that we got to take back from the culture. God is the heart of justice. God is the one who, it's his idea. He's the one who's against oppression. Not the left. Jesus. This is his heart. We take it back, and we church has to lead. And this is a good reminder for us that if any of us here in any form or fashion are participating in the sex industry with porn and every kind of fashion it can come in any different form, you have to know that that is leading and participating to the oppression of many. And God hates that, and we must hate that, church. Let me remind you Paul's words in Ephesians 5.3. Ephesians 5.3 on the screen. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So church, I, I just call you, like as a fellow luster myself, as one who's constantly trying to ask God to renew my mind. I'm not above, beyond this. I need God's help to walk in greater and greater purity. I want to call you, church, that, that if there's any among you who are caught in the snares of sexual morality in any form, it's a killer. And it'll kill you. And if you are not killing it, it is having victory over you and killing you more ways than one. But there is hope in the grace of the gospel. There is true victory in the grace of the gospel. So if that's you, don't walk but run into his light. Confess, come into the light, let us fight for you 
for your life. Men and women, I don't care who you are. I don't care if we would expect it or not expect it or you're the most unexpected person to struggle. That is attacking us. I get random texts or people trying to get at me like random porn actresses that are probably being deeply manipulated and controlled by people trying to bait me. It's attacking our generations at a young age. And I don't want to get into a whole rant on this because that's not the main point of the passage. But church, for us to live out the way of Yahweh, to fulfill the purposes God has for us, to be the priests to the world, we must walk in righteousness and justice. And that starts from inside out. The great problem first is not outside, it's inside. God, help us first. So I just want to welcome you again. If you are struggling, fighting, walking, or just absolutely in the snare, come into the light. Now let's look back at verse 21. It's, no, it's interesting that Yahweh says, I will go down and see whether they have done. Does that strike you as strange? Why would God go down and look when he already knows? Isn't God omniscient? Isn't he God El-Rohi who sees? And this is the same language that God used in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Why is he going down? Well, what I think this shows us, it shows us that God is deeply personal. He's deeply personal and intimately, intimately acquainted with the affairs of mankind. So take this to heart. God sees, he knows. He knows your cries of hurt, church. He sees every tear that falls that no one else sees, both from his people and the press and all the earth. And he takes it very personally because this is his creation whom he loves. And if you ever feel like God doesn't care, let this passage remind you that God not only hears, but he actually looks in himself. How, how is Abraham going to respond to all this? Give verse 23. I'm going to paraphrase for for some time, but Abraham draws near to him, which has this legal sense of him going before Yahweh, even though he's already there with him. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he starts going down this list of numbers with God. But the key heart is verse 25. Look at this with me. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Would you read that with me? It's going to be up on the screen on the next slide. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham is gripped, seized with this fear, this idea that this whole city will perish. And he cares about them. And he's appealing to God based off of God's character, saying, God, I, I know that you are the judge of all the earth and you do what's just, but it's not measuring up with what you're about to do. I don't get it. I don't understand. And so he's appealing from a place of humility, but deep directness to God. God, I don't get this. It seems like you are contradicting your hearts. And before we get into answering if God is being consistent with his character and the back and forth they do. Look at what is Abraham doing? What part is he playing? Abraham is functioning like a priest to all the nations. Remember what a priest does. A priest represents God to the world and the world to God. Track with me? That's what a priest does. God to the world, world to God. Priest functions as a mediator. And so Abraham is functioning as a priest for the sake of Sodom. He is starting to fulfill his role to bless the nations. 
He's starting to fulfill what he's been called to, what all people are called to who follow Yahweh. But notice this. He doesn't just pray for Lot, his cousin, he doesn't, or his nephew. He doesn't just pray for those whom he likes and loves. He could say, couldn't he do this? God, would you save Susie and Jim? He was nice to me the time. And then take them out and then the hell with the rest of them. Couldn't he do that? But what does he do? He's praying for all of them. He's praying for mercy for all of them. He is concerned for not just the righteous, but also the wicked. How could he have such a heart? Because remember, Sodom did not treat him well. Remember a few chapters back, Abraham was used to help deliver Sodom. And they don't show him any gratitude. He could be bitter. He could be petty. God, the hell with them. They didn't appreciate what I did for them. How can he have such a heart? Remember, at this point in the narrative, God has shown Abraham mercy after mercy. After Abraham has screwed up and messed up and didn't trust God, it has created, in some ways, irreparable damage that's going to last generations. So Abraham is a man who has experienced great mercy. And when you experience great mercy and you comprehend it, not just experience it, because all of us experience great mercy. It's just when you start to comprehend it and receive it, what does it do to your heart? It creates a merciful heart. Now, Abraham has an increasingly transformed merciful heart, and he now wants to extend mercy to the Sodomites. And if you struggle here or I struggle at any time with, with not showing mercy to others, it's just an indication that we're not comprehending the unfathomable mercy of God towards us. I'm praying that God would have give birth in us this kind of heart for the cities. Now, Abraham asked six questions. We're going to read back and forth because it's worth the time. Um, I'm going to read the narrator, and I want you to read Abraham's, sorry, read out loud God's voice. It's in bold on the next screen. So we're going to do this together. I think it's worthwhile. Oh, my gosh. Never mind. <laughs> I promise in my program it will spread apart. Okay, so we're not going to do that. So what happens is that God is going to go back and forth with Abraham. And I want to remind you that who initiates this whole conversation? God does. God initiates this. He's going to share his heart to Abraham. It's not like he was over speaking and Abraham's like, what's that, God? Hey, 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 let me stop you, God, because you're going to go on a rampage and I'm the kind one and you're the mean one because you're in the Old Testament still, right? And I'm going to try to stop you from doing something you shouldn't do. See, I initially titled this section Humble Questions. But what I realized as I meditate on more is the absurd condescension and humility of God. Who is Abraham to speak to God like this? Who is Abraham to go back and forth and try to barter with God in his plans? How is it possible that El Shaddai, El Elyon, would give time to speak back and forth with such a sinner like Abraham? What kind of God is that? It's our God. That's, that's who. Our God is like that. Who wants to talk with us, welcomes us into conversation, welcomes us into his heart, and patiently walks us through his heart to teach us. Not like me sometimes when my kids are asking question after question. I'm like, please stop. I'm getting tired. The ears are getting tired. Please stop, right? God is patient to walk through with Abraham to teach him more about his heart. 
Abraham is not holding back God. Please, God, be good, be nice. Remember, God does not need convincing. Justice and mercy are God's ideas. Abraham is merely learning from God. This is God's heart to disciple Abraham. It's interesting that if you look at this narrative, this going back and forth, if you could just put that passage back up that only half of you could read, is that he starts with 50 and it ends at 10. God doesn't say no once. He says yes every single time. And at 10, he just ends the conversation. So at the end of the day, it's up to God. Notice that Abraham doesn't start with 10. And it, notice that Abraham doesn't even say one, because what we realize as Abraham is going back and forth with God, he's going and saying, would you do a 50, 45? And he's going down because he's realizing as he's going down that there are none righteous. No, not one. He's realizing, I think, comprehension, light bulbs are dawning on him. More and more, he's realizing that God must judge the city as he's going down. There's not even 10? There's not even 10 righteous people in this entire city? God is renewing his mind. See, some of us can only comprehend a good God that spares everyone always, and that, and that only is when he's good. But what I want to show you through this passage is we see that God being good and just is also God judging when it's time. And remember, back in Genesis, when God is speaking to Abraham and saying, your, your, your descendants are going to come back in four generations or 400 years when the Amorite sin is complete. Do you guys remember that passage? You guys memorized my sermon, remember, right? Um, well, what is that saying? Is that there is sin that is going to build up in this, the people of Cana. And eventually it will get to the point where it's so inseparable, so much, that God must judge. And if he doesn't, he's wicked. And that has happened for Sodom. And I think during this process, as God is going back and forth and entertaining Abraham's questions, he is helping shape and disciple Abraham to realize it is right for him to judge Sodom at this time. The outcry is too great. It's been too long. This reminds me of Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So what must God do for Sodom? He must judge them. It's their time. But then it, this all begs the question, church, what must God do with Sam Choi? Because I have given myself in many times to gluttony and to pride and to apathy to the poor and needy and to lust and been proud. He ought to judge me if he truly is a just judge who does what is right. And he ought to judge you as well. And I want you to know that God never holds back his judgment when it's all said and done. Either his judgment goes upon you or it goes upon a worthy substitute. But if there only could be a substitute, who could be worthy to be a substitute when Romans 3 says none are righteous, no, not one? Who could be? If there's only one who could be truly righteous, if there's only one who could stand in place of the wicked like you and me, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Would you read this with me? Jesus Christ, the righteous. We do, church, have a righteous one 
The only righteous one who ever lived who could stand before God as a substitute for us. And God can spare the wicked like you and me because of Jesus. And not just spare us, but make us righteous as well. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most precious passages in the Bible. For God, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Why? The purpose? So that... In him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So is Sam Choi righteous? Yes. Sam Choi a sinner? Yes. And until Christ comes back, both are true. But all of us who are trusting in Jesus, we are righteous. And therefore, God can spare us and both maintain his justice and his mercy and love. Those who have put their trust in Jesus, who have turned from their control They have been forgiven as if they've never, ever done anything wrong. Even though my track record is like Sodom's, it's as if I've never done it. That can only happen through the gospel of Jesus. The only way that the judge of all the earth can withhold judgment on Sam Choi is because that judgment has already been paid by his perfect righteous son. And therefore, if he were to judge me again, it would be injustice because it's already been paid for. And so for any of you here, Christians, who are beating yourselves up because you fell again, or you're struggling again, remember that it would be unjust, unjust for you to beat yourself up anymore and for God to beat you up again. Because it's already been taken by his son, willingly and lovingly for you. So if you're here and you're not trusting and following Jesus, I urge you to do it today. Do not delay. You will either pay for your, your judge, the judgment that's due for you, or you're going to put your trust on a substitute, on Jesus the righteous. Now, I, I want to kind of zoom out real quick. It, it may look like for the time being that people can get away with things, right? We heard from Pastor Jonathan from City Church on Psalm 73 that if we zoom out and we discern the end, we see the destruction and the end for the wicked and the destination of the righteous. But I, I want to remind us, what we learn from Sodom and other stories is that God knows whose are his. He knows his people. They're not just a blob of people. He knows each individual. He knows their heart. He knows their fear. He knows their sin. He knows their triumphs. And he can see it all. He's El Rohi. And he will do what is just. This goes for individuals. And remember, cities and nations are made up of individuals. And what we see is Sodom is a foreshadow of ultimate judgment. See, because the ultimate judgment is not physical death, but eternal death. And what Sodom reminds us is that God knows who are his, are his. He knows how to aim. We see this in Ezekiel and also in Revelation that God's people are marked by his seal. He knows in this room whose are his and whose are not. And so that ultimately, yes, in this earth, in this age, the wicked and the righteous suffer together where it looks like there's no distinction. But when it's all said and done, God knows whose are his. And there's a distinction. And it has eternal ramifications. Never ends. If you see injustice in the world and you feel like God is doing nothing, know that God is doing something. You look in Minneapolis, I feel like there's an uptick of darkness in our cities. It's been troubling me more and more. You see Ukraine and Russia is still going on. We see Israel and Palestine. There is so much evil. We see the rampant 
perversions in our own country. You know the U.S. leads the world in porn. We're not the biggest country. We don't just lead it. Second is a far, far second. When will God judge us? He knows who's are his. And if you struggle with the wisdom of God in his administration of his, his governing of this universe, let me remind you, if you were to see everything God sees, and if you were to know everything God knows, and if you were to have the perfect heart that God has, you would do exactly what he does. You would never question anything. And the reason why you and I question situations, both globally, locally, and individually in our relationships and our own fights inside, is because we don't see what he sees. We don't know what he knows, and we don't feel what he feels. But if we could entrust and cast our hearts to trusting the God who does, oh, how freeing is that? How freeing is it to let down our own gavel and let the judge of all the earth do what is right? And trust that he can do and govern better than you. And you can let go. You can have the most painful situation that makes no sense. And you don't have to try to seize control and try to figure out why. You can say, God, I'm going to trust the judge of all the earth. We'll do right. Instead of giving into cynicism and doubt, you can give yourself and trust yourself into trusting. And not just trusting, but take on the mantle of being a priest with God. To being a high priest with, being a priest with the high priest Jesus. Who's interceding, interceding day and night. Let me remind you of a passage, Second, 1 Peter 2, two slides from now. I want, to, I want to invite you to read this with me out loud. This is our identity, church. This is an expansion of Exodus 19, and this is what the church is called to. Would you read this out loud? But you are a chosen race. So we wait and we cry out with the slain, with those who are crying out for justice. We then, as we comprehend the pain and the mourning, we then turn those pains and mournings and laments into praying and interceding and longing for our king to return and turning it into preaching as we share his marvelous excellencies of what Christ has done for us and what he can do for anyone else who trusts in him. And we join in Jesus, the only righteous one who's interceding. We fulfill the call to be priests. I want to end with this. Church, I think this is something that many Christians don't think about. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters really think about this a lot, and this is something we can grow in. You are called to be a priest to the nations. You are called to intercede like a watchkeeper, day and night, looking and hastening the return of Jesus. And not just hastening the return of Jesus, but bringing about his will and his ways through your intercession and through your preaching, through your participation in his will. And how do you do that? You have to walk the way of righteousness and justice because if you're walking in impurity, you cannot join him in his plans properly. And then you have to get his heart And so my prayer is that God would grant to our church a holy groan and an ache in our hearts to to long for revival in our cities. If anyone has seen Jesus Revolution recently, it's really, that's only only a few, it's worth watching. It's not a perfect movie like all Christian movies. It can be hard at times, but it's very good. 
And one of the things that has stirred in me is a fresh longing for revival. And I, and I pray that God would grant our church, our members, this holy discontentment for how things are. But let me, let me warn you, this path is one that is painful. To be an intercessor is not comfortable. If you want the health and wealth, prosperity, gospel, where you come to Christ for you to feel better about everything, you will not feel better. You'll feel worse. Because you're going to enter into the sufferings of Christ. You're going to enter into his heart. And he's going to start to give you eyes to see all the suffering around you. And if you struggle with fighting pornography or other forms of lust or, or other petty forms of selfishness, When you see the sufferings of this world and God's heart for it, it's, it's a lot easier to fight. But when you don't see that stuff, then it's all about us. Our own anxiety, our social anxiety, our loneliness, it's all about us. But then when you have the eyes of Christ to see how he feels about the nations, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I wanted to hold you like a hen, hold your chicks, then the fight about porn is a lot easier. And then the fight of materialism is a lot easier. Do you think any Israelite right now, any, not Israel, every Jew, any Jew right now struggling porn right now? They're, they're literally, I'm hearing reports, they're trying to fly. Jews abroad are literally trying to fly back so they can join the army and fight. When you see the sufferings of the world and God gives you his eyes, it quickens you. And all these other things that we fight with become a lot dimmer. Because we know we're on mission. We are here for a purpose. And when you enter into his sufferings, you're going to experience suffering like you've never known, sorrows like you've never known, but you also will experience joys like you've never known. His presence, his sweet presence as you suffer alongside of him, as we wait and long for the coming of our Messiah, our final coming and redemption of all things.